Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day to all of you moms out there. Um, there, Tim, lower that volume a little bit. A couple things. Um, Tim, thanks for that sharing. And Reese, glad to have you here today. Reese is uh, in school for engineering working at Medtronic and hopefully someday to be an engineer there and other places. So yeah, great stories. And um, we typically send out a quarterly uh, report and letter and we post that on the, on the, uh, on the realm for the church uh, to, to see. And so we'll have our, our next issue coming out here in the next few weeks and we'll have some more details on some of those stories. So it's, it's Mother's Day, and when I put the series together, these series, um, I put the passages together and the titles and the themes, and, I, and I'm not thinking about some of the holidays necessarily. So um, I have a friend, I just was, we were hanging out with some of the local pastors this week, and um, he uh, was putting his series together on 1 Corinthians, and the passage that he's preaching this morning, unplanned, is the, is the passage on head coverings from 1 Corinthians 11. So... Um, <laughs> We are just working through the laws of the covenant code in the book of Exodus, and Amanda read some passages that I will not be preaching on, but I wanted to keep that as the reading because it kind of shows some of the diversity of the laws. Um, but today I actually picked out, we're going to look at two laws that affect mothers and, and women. That's as close as I could get to a Mother's Day theme out of the Old Testament covenant code. So... Um, yeah, we are working through the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. We have tracked the promise of God to bring a child, to bring life back to humanity since Genesis chapter 3. God created humanity to dwell with them, to experience life and peace and prosperity and happiness, but, but humanity rejected God and... Um, God then initiated this promise, this promise of a, of a child from woman who would come um, and bring life and blessing back to earth and, bring you and, and punish evil and destroy evil and the serpent that brought it. And so uh, that, that promised child eventually turned into the family of Israel. Israel was, was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God rescued them out of Egypt in the great story of the uh, Exodus and the ten plagues and the, and the destruction of Egypt's armies at the Red Sea. He has now brought them to Mount Sinai. He has given them the Ten Commandments, which is what uh, we've been over the last two weeks. And now I just wanted to take just one week and, and actually look at some of the individual laws because a lot of them don't make sense to us. Uh, a lot of them seem harsh. Um, and, and so I th but I, th I think it's helpful because we have these ideas about what these laws are to at least spend a little bit of time um, getting down into them and, and just pausing a little bit because there's a lot of wisdom. And, and as the entire Pentateuch is organized around us growing in our knowledge of and fear of God, there's a lot in there that reveals to us, to the reader, about who God is. As strange as these laws are, there's a lot of, a lot of great stuff in them. So I just wanted to take a little bit of time to do that this week. Now, the, the news of the Supreme Court's leak this week on the written opinion of the court in regard to uh, abortion 
was just more gas on the raging cultural wars that we find us ourselves in. And I think we're going to look back and see that it's another one of these points in history that seems to bring more division into our country rather than, rather than unity. Um, and, and it just increasingly seems like it's very possible. This, is a, this, this past week was the first time I thought that, you know, is, is America's future, um, is it going to look like a collection of independent states? Because you've seen all these maps. Here are the abortion-friendly states, abortion-opposed states. Are we going to be like Europe? I mean, America is one of the longest uh, living countries in terms of its uh, political identity and system of governance in in the world. We know historically these nations, borders, these things are changing. That is the norm. Um, An enduring country and nation is not. So who knows? Um, Many people see that the return to some moral law is, is the way ahead. That's popular opinion on the right. I've got friends that are believers, and, and um, they've communicated to me. I think many of you probably know or have heard of people saying, listen, what we've got to do is we've got to get back to the moral law of God in this country. Um, and then, but it's also... Uh, a belief in law that that is not just something that the that the quote right uh, holds to be a hope, but also the left in terms of having laws like this that protect individual freedoms. And so we can see both on the on the right and the left uh, the desire to use law to obtain some vision for what they believe to be. Uh, a right way of life, a life that leads to prosperity and happiness. This hope and law, and that's one of the things that I want to show today, and one of the things that Moses is trying to show in actually writing a lot of these laws down, is that hope in the power of law is a misplaced hope. Laws require enforcement and assume transgressions. The way out of our sins, the way out of our collective division and hatred, uh, it cannot be law. Cannot be law. There is a purpose for law, and I want to show some of that today, but our hope cannot be in laws, our hope cannot be in following rules, our hope cannot be in, in forcing people to abide by laws and rules. That's Moses, believe it or not, Moses, the man of law who wrote the law, is trying to show in his laws, and we're going to show this next week more specifically, that laws are not the answer. Laws are not the answer. So again, today we're going to look at a sampling, just two. Um, we're going to see the principles of the Ten Commandments. So if you could think of the Ten Commandments like as the Constitution for Israel that contained all of the principles that are needed or, or really founding the rest of the laws that are going to unfold. And we're, what we're going to see is that a lot of these laws are more like case studies where specifics are addressed. And in the addressing of specifics with the principles of the Ten Commandments as the foundation, all of these cases would go before judges to decide. Every scenario 
cannot be put into codified law. We try to do that. I mean, that's why our law books are so massive. We create laws for a lot of specifics. But here we find um, it's three chapters of laws here in the covenant code. Um, and I've selected two. Again, we're going to look at laws related to mothers or would-be mothers. And we're going to look at how, to, how do we view these laws today? How do we view these laws today? So the covenant code, so there are several big chunks of laws in the Pentateuch. This first big chunk of laws after the Ten Commandments is called the Covenant Code. That's what scholars have called it. And it, and it comes in the text immediately after Israel withdrew from God's presence. Remember, God was coming down, down to Mount Sinai. He wanted to meet with Israel. They had to hold themselves from going up into the mountain until the right time, until the trumpet blasted. The trumpet blasts, and they don't want to go up. They said, Moses... Uh, we would prefer that you speak with God and then you speak to us what God has to say because we don't want to meet God face to face. So this covenant code would have been, along with the Ten Commandments, the initial set of laws that God gave the entire nation of Israel and that all of them were supposed to hear. So if you could imagine, here are all of the laws, nation, Okay, that would be impossible for us to do. I mean, the people that vote on our laws in Congress, the representatives in the Senate, a lot of them don't even read the entire laws before they vote on them. It is so massive. Well, here's three chapters of laws. These are the laws for the nation, and then judges would decide on how to address various issues. So the laws were there. If you can remember at the beginning, God said, I'm going to make you a, a distinct nation. I'm going to make you a holy nation. A holy nation is one that is set apart. It's different from the other nations. It's not going to make them, quote, holy. Holy in terms of pure, righteous. Okay, oftentimes that's how we think about the word holy. Holy means separate and distinct. This, is, this, this set of laws is going to set Israel apart as separate and distinct from the other nations, and we're going to show that in a few ways as well. So the laws break down, just overview. There are human rights, and you're going to see that the categories are very similar to our, what we would see as categories for our, our laws. There's human rights, there's property rights. There are laws that specify what are abominations and, are, and idolatrous within the nation. There are laws that protect the vulnerable which are the immigrants, refugees, widows, orphans, and the poor. There are laws that um, specify obligations to governing leaders and religious leaders. There are laws about how to carry out justice. There are laws about time and work and land, much like we have. And there are laws that, that govern how to appropriately worship and honor God, especially now as they have priests that they've asked for. Israel ratifies these laws and, and affirms the covenant, so they've agreed. So God says, you will be my people if you agree and do these things. And they say, oh, we agree and we will do these things. So then Moses heads up to the mountain to get more laws, and that's the rest of really the book of Exodus is laws about the tabernacle and priests. So examples of laws. I'm going to make a few preliminary comments. 
And this is, these are really important because we, come, we read these laws and we're like, man, I mean, I, I, had a, I just had Amanda read over the ones that I'm going to look at today, give her the option of reading these or reading the ones in the handout. And she said, well, Dad, these are, these are kind of dark. <laughs> so we come to these laws and like, most of the laws are thou shalt not, right? I mean, it's, most of the laws are negative. Most of the laws are dealing with human sin. So that a lot of them are going to be negative. So a few comments. One, the laws are not creating an entire social order. We often think of the laws as, ooh, these are the ideals in, under God's administration. No. If you want the ideals under God's administration, you're going to find those in the, the New Testament. God is not laying out ideals like for the entire social order. He's laying out laws that kind of presume an existing order. And, and the laws are intended to restrain humans from their worst abuses that are common in the ancient world at that time. For example, there is no law in the covenant code on how daughters should be married. There's no laws specifying that, okay, a father and a mother, especially the father, they have to go out and pick the... There's no, there's no laws specifying that. It's assuming an existing order. Not because that order is good, it's just this is the way that humans are doing things. I've got to restrain them, all right? So in the system that's there, a parents, especially the fathers, have authority over their daughters... Interested suitors, a young man that would want to marry the, the woman, would pay a bride price, which I'm going to explain later. Uh, again, there are no laws establishing that. It, the text is not saying that if God were to set things up, this is how we do it. We oftentimes go to the text and we read that and say, man, God is crazy. This doesn't make any sense to me. Humans have existed, and they have created orders and customs. What God is doing is trying to restrain the abuses. So he's going to introduce protections and responsibilities within that order. God does not seek to completely change human behavior. For example, there is no law against men fighting in any of the Old Testament laws. Now, we would assume that God is not really pro-men fighting, right? But there's no laws against it. There are lots of examples, though, in the covenant code and in the rest of the laws themselves. When two men fight and this, and this happens, here's how to deal with it. But there's no laws against men fighting. The assumption is that men will fight. So what God does in his laws is he establishes consequences for men that fight. If nothing happens to anybody, that's fine. If somebody gets hurt, that's when God's laws take effect. So are you kind of getting this? Don't assume that God's perfect order has been articulated and established in the Old Testament. That's not, that's not what he was doing. Now, in contrast to our laws, it's, it's illegal for us to hit someone. Whether we hurt them permanently or short-term or not, it, it's assault. Okay, God doesn't have that, have that same law. 
And the third one is I've already, something that I already mentioned. They would read this as an entire nation. So all of the people would hear the laws. All the, all the people would kind of have a general sense of what, what God was after in ordering this nation and restraining it from its worst abuses. So law number one. Exodus chapter 21, and I'm going to read the law. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. When men strive together, this is one of those laws, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So this is one of those laws. It seems a little strange. Why would two men be fighting near a pregnant woman? And why would this law be identified? Like, there's certainly a lot of other scenarios where men are fighting and hurt people. But why this? Was there adultery discovered by the husband of the woman, and now he's gone to attack the, the adulterer, and the wife slash co-adulterer who is now pregnant is following him? Is there a wife that steps into a fight? She's trying to break up that her husband and another man are engaged in? What about the people that aren't pregnant and standing around and get hurt? Has anybody ever been hurt because of a fight that was in their midst? Is that? Okay, well, Tim, we knew you would be. <laughs> what we can see here is that, is that um, the concern is predominantly about women and their unborn children, women and their children in general. So there are two stipulations. If these fighting men cause the, women, the woman to prematurely deliver, but there is no harm, there's just a fine. However, if harm is done, and it seems like harm to either the woman or the child, the one who perpetrates the harm will suffer in the same way that that woman or that child did. Again, it seems harsh, especially since it's an accident, really. So in the laws, which Amanda read this morning, there are laws that govern murder and manslaughter. If you intentionally murder someone under the Old Testament code, your life was forfeit. And that began in, um, after the flood in Genesis chapter 9. So if another human being intentionally takes the life of another human being, that person forfeits their life. However, under the manslaughter charges, if you accidentally killed somebody, your life would not be forfeit. You'd have to go live in what they called a city of refuge. Okay? Accidents happen. God recognizes that. However, if you're fighting with another man and you accidentally bring death to a pregnant woman or her child, Regardless of whether it was, well, it's, it's accidental because it's not, it's not the intended person to fight. 
if you accidentally harm, or if you accidentally kill the woman or her child, you forfeit your life. So God is upholding in this strange law the value and the importance of women and children and the need for men to concern themselves first and foremost with their safety. And if men don't, it may cause, it may, it may bring them to forfeit their own lives. It also highlights, this law also highlights the difference between Israel and the other nations. So, you know, in your Western Civ class, you probably heard of the Code of Hammurabi. It's a Babylonian code, ancient, around the same time as the Old Testament code would have been given. Um, in the Code of Hammurabi, they distinguished between three social classes. And the laws and consequences were different for each social class. So, for example, if someone killed an upper-class woman, the daughter of the perpetrator would be killed. Not the perpetrator, but the daughter of the perpetrator. If a lower-class woman was killed, the perpetrator would just pay a fine. So here what God is establishing is that all human beings are equal, regardless of their social status, regardless of how much money they have, regardless of whether they're a farmer or a politician. Everybody is the same. They could be a, a person that is homeless, a servant or a slave in their house. All people are equal in the eyes of God. Very distinct. I mean, this, this law was, would have been revolutionary in ancient times. And it's, and it's the influence of um, these ideas that informed Western civilization, Western Christendom, America, Europe, and the, and the understanding of human rights that we have. And the big question now that we have in our own culture is, now that we have thrown out biblical religion, can the ideals and laws and systems that it created survive when those things are gone? Can the house survive without the foundations? That's the big question. That's what Christian and secular historians and sociologists and philosophers are asking right now. Where is our country, where is, where is the West headed since we've removed the foundations of biblical religion? Highlights of the law. First of all, the punishment is limited and it's measured. The perpetrator would suffer as the victim would suffer. It was not perpetual. One of the challenges that we have on our own legal system is that if you commit a serious crime, it, it stays with you for maybe decades, maybe for the rest of your life. And that's one of the things that Gina, Gina does a lot of work. Um, she's not a lobbyist. She is an advocate for, for those who have come out of crime and addiction and substance abuse and have come through the, the correction system, have gotten their lives in order, like, like, like Seth and Gina have. And there's a lot of the people that have gone through the homes uh, that we've done. You know, Seth and Gina have both been pardoned by governors. If you've never attended one of those pardon hearings, it is, it is amazing. It is amazing. Uh, Gina was pardoned by Governor Dayton, and Seth was uh, pardoned by, by Governor Walls. But it is an exceptional case to be pardoned. And it is a lot of work to be pardoned. In the Old Testament, 
you paid your penalty, and that was it. You could go back to your family. You could go back to your farm. You could continue on with your life. You just paid the penalty, and it was done. Second law, Exodus chapter 22, 16 through 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Okay, again, another strange law. Okay, so again, we have a tendency to react because we, we read this and we're like, oh, it's a patriarchal system. This sounds very transactional. Is, is the daughter the property of the parents, especially the dad? Um, does the woman have any agency at all in this? Okay, so here's the normal order of things, okay, according to the customs of the times. The, the suitor, the one pursuing to marry the, the, the woman, would make his intent known to the parents, especially the father. If the parents, especially the father, approved, okay, the suitor would then pay a bride price. Okay, now let me explain the bride price to you. And it, you know, when you're just reading through all these laws, this is crazy, this is crazy, this is crazy. If you take it some time to actually stop and think, there is a lot of wisdom here. So here's the bride price. First of all, it would demonstrate that the man had the financial means to care for a wife and family, all right? Because that's a big part of what it means to be a husband and a father. Can you care for the people that you're responsible for? Economics plays a much bigger role in everyday life than we give it credit for. It just does. The parents could keep the bride price, and oftentimes the parents would keep it to compensate for the economic productivity that they lost in losing a daughter. Or the bride price could go to the daughter for, for the potential future fact of her husband might be killed in a war, or he might be injured, or he, he might die for other reasons, okay? So she would have a financial reserve, kind of like disability insurance, all right? That's kind of like, that's essentially what it was with the daughter kept it. And it expressed a seriousness to sacrifice... All right, to sac what's the command in the New Testament for husbands? Love and give your life for your wife. Okay, that's sacrifice, which is what Jesus defined as the ultimate de definition of love, to give your life for the benefit of another. So in the bride price would already reflect this man is willing to make a sacrifice, and these weren't small things. These were large sums of money. And then, so... The parents would approve. He'd pay the bride price to the parents or to the, to the daughter. There would be a public ceremony. And then the marriage was consummated through sexual union after all of that process. And so this law is addressing um, the whole thing happening in reverse. All right? So it's not, it's not a rape. It's not that this law is not addressing a rape. This, this law is addressing when a man and a woman are interested in each other, they're attracted to each other, and they have sex. That's what this law is addressing, okay? Um, so he, the, the man enjoys the woman prior to making the commitment. Um, 
And so the law then says, listen, well, you've, you've enjoyed the privileges of a husband, but you haven't demonstrated worthiness. You haven't demonstrated that you can take care of her. You haven't demonstrated that um, respect for her parents, especially the father. Okay, so you still need to pay this, and you need to marry her. You need to take the responsibility now that you've already enjoyed sexual relationship with her. But the father can refuse. Why would the father refuse? I don't want, I'm not going to give my daughter to that guy. He can't hold a job down. Or he's an abuser. I mean, there's a whole list of reasons why a father wouldn't want to give his daughter to a man that's not going to take care of her. But he would still have to pay the bride price. Because back then, it's very possible for a woman who's already had sex to, with a man to not be a desirable wife to another man. Part of, the, part of the social custom. So, what are the highlights of the law? Well, to have sex with a woman is to take responsibility as a husband and potential father. That's what it meant. That's what it meant. It's not what it means in our day, but that's what it meant. That's what it means to God. That's what it meant to ancient Israel. The law affirms that responsibility. It strives to make men responsible. What's our system for making men responsible in our day? Do we have one? It minimizes the possibility of young women being taken advantage of. So if you can think of a young woman ages 13 or 14, or I mean, they were marrying young back then, all right? It's not like they're talking about people in their 30s and 40s. Could have been. It's not saying that's not, that's not the case. But you can imagine two young people or an older man taking advantage of a younger woman, which was most likely the case. It affirms the importance of marriage and of stable homes. And it recognizes, this is, I just thought that this was, it, it recognizes that money, not reason, you know, you can re, try to reason people into understanding why it's important, you know, to take responsibility and to, to get married before you have sex. You know, you can try to reason all that. But we all know how effective reason is when our emotions and our passions are involved. Reasons, it's just not as effective. But money, that's, that's pretty important to us. And it recognizes that money is a strong motiva motivating um, factor in, in the minds of people, especially, especially men. And it gives responsibility to fathers, not because the daughter is the property of the father. It gives responsibility or shows the responsibility of fathers because when it comes right down to it, dads are going to take care of their daughters. As a father of two daughters, all right, you know, the, my sons will complain that I show favoritism towards my daughters. I do. Regardless of whatever happens to my daughters, dad will be there. There's a, a, a book that um, 
Micah and Nicole rec- recommended to me called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. And there's a corresponding one, Strong Mothers, Strong Sons. But one of the principles in that, in that book is that is, is really encouraging fathers to, to always be there for their daughters because regardless of what trouble happens to the, to the daughters, the daughters will always go to dad. Will always go to dad because the dads will be there for their daughters and it affirms that. So conclusion. Now, obviously, these laws don't make anybody righteous. These two laws affirm something that we all know to be true. Whether we're talking, you know, 3,500 years ago, ancient Israel, or we're talking 2022, two things that we know, men will fight, and young men and women will be having sex before marriage. That is always, those two things have always existed, they will always exist. Israel would only be holy. So he's not saying, here's what it means to become righteous. He's, he's, he's trying to curb our worst instincts and to create a distinct nation. Israel would be holy because of how they handled human nature. If God were to give us laws today, they'd probably, see, they'd probably address the same categories, probably have the same categories of, of vulnerable people that would need to be protected. They would look profoundly different because we don't do the same types of things. Our social customs are different. In fact, we don't really even have social customs. Righteousness was not the goal. We tend to think of rules, laws, etc. If we could follow them, we could be righteous. You guys, that's our flesh. That's our flesh. Our flesh longs to be considered good and righteous and pure and true without acknowledging the need that we have for an outside source to come in and say, here's, here's how I will make you righteous. You are unable to be righteous without me. You are unable to be good without me. Our flesh is saying, no. I want to be good. I want to be considered good. I want to have a good reputation. I want people to think highly of me because of who I am and what I've done and whatever. That's what we want. And, and we, we are antagonistic against any idea that says that we can't be righteous. And so because of that, that fleshly yearning, that's the flesh, you guys. That, that is the flesh, this desire to be righteous outside of God, outside of Christ, to admit that we have a need that we can't fulfill. What Jesus Christ does is he comes and says, I will give you a righteous identity, and then you will be holy. You will be above reproach. Your sins will be cleansed. You will be white as snow. I will separate you and your sins as far as the east is from the west. The idea of forgiveness is that they are picked up and they are hauled away. That's what it means to be forgiven. That's the literal definition of forgiveness. Picked up and hauled away. Righteousness will not come from laws. Righteousness being good the experience of prosperity and happiness only comes from Jesus Christ who gives us his righteousness. And then he not only gives us that identity, but in the, the laws of Christ found in the New Testament, 
He actually says, okay, I want you to pursue righteousness. You've become a slave of righteousness. Not a slave of laws. You've become a slave of righteousness. And if you go into the New Testament, just think through, you know, Colossians and Ephesians you're familiar with, or any of the instructions and commandments in the New Testament, they are pressing us towards things far greater than what the Old Testament laws were pressing us towards. They are pressing us towards love and kindness and generosity and patience and forbearance and chastity, and righteousness, and, and not anger. Okay? They are pressing us towards what we can be because God has put his Holy Spirit in us. So we can be righteous. Christ has given us that identity. Boom, I am righteous. Now I am progressing towards a greater experience of that righteousness. Just like Tim said, that's a long process. And again, thank you for all of you that's pray for and support the work that we do in the, in the homes. Because it is a long work, and over years, we've been at this for over 10 years now, 11 years, there are stories of people that over time have found to become more and more righteous, free from being enslaved to sin. And that's not just on a personal level. You know, we, we started this with this national debate around abortion. We long for a nation of righteousness and unity and peace. We long for it. We as a people long for it. We long for it because there's something about God's image in us that presses us towards that. And the, and the call to righteousness is not only something that we have in Christ through his Holy Spirit, but it's something that we collectively have as a people. God is building his kingdom. Right now, that kingdom is local churches, is local churches spread out all over the world. And the first step that we have in our mission is not to make the nations around us righteous. It's to be righteous as a people so that we can be distinct, so we can bring people, so they can see something about us as a kingdom, and we can say, hey, come into the kingdom of God. It's coming. These nations are falling away. What will be of Ukraine? What will be of Russia? What will be of Poland? What will be of the United States in a hundred years? Who knows? But the kingdom of God will exist. And when Jesus, when Jesus returns, he will establish it for eternity. And it will be a nation of righteousness where no laws are needed. No laws will be needed. We won't need a teacher, the scriptures say, because we will be dwelling in the presence of God and we will be fully transformed. So when we see these laws, whether it's in the Old Testament, whether it's in the New Testament, we can see the principle that God is going after, and we can also see the coveting that's in our own hearts. That, you know, commandment number 10, do not covet. Do not desire something thinking that it's going to bring prosperity and happiness to you. The only thing that can bring prosperity and happiness to you is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we see these laws addressing weaknesses in us, don't pull back like Israel did. Don't pull back with a guilty conscience, which was exactly what Israel did. Step forward because, one, your identity is now in Jesus Christ. Your sin is not who you are. The laws identify sin and then draw us closer to who Jesus is. Jesus, thank you for giving me the identity of your identity of righteousness. My coveting, my immorality, my hatred, my, my malicious speech, these are not me. My lying, my cheating, my stealing, these are not me. I've committed them, but they are not me. You are me. And I expose them so that you can cleanse them. That's what these laws do. 
They expose so Jesus can cleanse. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your abundant word, for your wise word, for, for showing us how you care about people. In these laws, it seems so strange, God. We see your wisdom, and we can see that you are trying to bring about a people of justice, of righteousness, of equity. And so, God, we, we as your church as have inherited this tradition in Jesus Christ and all of these promises. God, our longing is to be a distinct and holy nation amongst these nations that are falling apart. In Christ's name, amen.